0: hello Reed timmer
1: hey how's it going who do we have uh, uh, on hand for this one we
0: have uh, Nick the body you may know him as from Regina oh yeah and we have how's it going
1: Nick
2: pretty good how are you doing Reed long time no talk
0: yeah yeah I think the last long.
2: time I saw you yeah, was uh I think the last time I saw you was when you came up for the rider game a couple years ago
1: yeah hey yeah, you guys had a good season last year didn't you
2: Pretty good season for uh, for a hometown Grey Cup, no doubt about that.
1: Oh, yeah. It was awesome. I loved going to that game. It was fun. I'm a Riders fan. I'm an OU Sooner fan first, Detroit Lions fan <laughs> second, uh, the Riders <laughs> are third. The Lions, though, uh, I think this year, it should happen. A lot of talent, but, but the Lions have a bad losing culture there.
3: I just want to throw out a funny little mention that the last time uh, when we had our a bust chase there in um, Russell, Manitoba last year was one year right. ago today. <laughs> so it's oh kind of goodness. good timing for their show.
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> well, hey, a, bus, a busted chase is better than no chase at all any day, isn't it?
3: Yeah, yeah. Turned out to be a good, pretty good day, though.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I can't believe it. What, what is the date today? July 20, 29th? 29? 20, July twenty nine. Yeah, twenty right. nine. Wow. yeah the season seems to go year round these days doesn't
2: it did uh I don't know if Reed saw this but did you any of you guys see that um that cyclone on uh radar up here the other day there's an example of the polar vortex for you oh
1: yeah was <laughs> well, that the one that uh you mean the, the the cold upper low that was swinging around the back yeah. side of it yeah yeah that's the one that, that was what led to the chase on on uh in uh, in the Appalachians, the Central Appalachians. We were we started off yep. in eastern Kentucky and then could have seen that tornado in northeast Tennessee too. It was one of those fifty fifty decisions and we got aggressive and went to Hazard Kentucky, but should have kept dropping south on thirteen and then punched over the Appalachians and then blasted west and could have caught those. But I thought a, a storm to the north might might go and thought they'd have more east south eastly storm motions, but I mean they don't due south and still saw some tree damage, some tornado damage at like twenty five hundred feet in the Appalachians at big stone gap, which was intense. But, I mean, uh, it's tough terrain out there for sure.
2: Hmm. No doubt. And the, right, it seemed like the guy go who got the, the, best, the best video of that storm was uh, that guy who was kind of on his front porch and had that tor- the tornado just kind of <laughs> traveled down the street there.
1: Yeah, that thing was insane. I wish he tilted back up. He probably would have seen one of those nubs or cinnamon bun funnel up there or something. But I think it was an intense, <laughs> intense little uh, multivortex. Had that one suction vortex that – that Moda's lawn form took care of that. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, no one was hurt. And then Revere, Massachusetts, too, the EF two up there. That was like nine or ten in the morning and I came here to New York and dropped off Maria just in time to do weather on Fox and I could have kept going up the, the coast and then maybe seen the Revere one, but I guess, you know, that, that would have been a, a pretty nuts move to to target a tornado at nine in the morning in Eastern New England, I would have gotten you know, stuck in morning traffic or something. But <laughs> I like chasing the East Coast. I'm starting to get obsessed with it. You know, I mean, it's, uh, it's definitely a challenge. You got to get lucky. So you guys are definitely uh, killing it. I was checking out your website more. I, I've checked out a few times actually over the years, and see you guys are doing a web series and everything too, which is awesome.
0: Yeah, we're and, working uh, it slowly but sure. You guys are killing it. <laughs> This season's been really slow, so it's been bad for content, but I mean, we do what we can up here. Oh, yeah.
1: And you can always chase a hurricane or something in the fall or exactly. you know, some, maybe some, some lobe low will wrap around the polar vortex and maybe get some cold core action.
3: <laughs> Nine months of snow. <laughs>
1: it's going to be a long winter, isn't it? <laughs> yeah,
0: it feels like we just got can out you- of winter
1: it's going to oh, be with a we'll spring. subtropical jet with el nino with uh and maybe we'll get some storm systems in the subtropical jet and have some chases near the gulf coast again. Just back in 2012 I chased on Christmas Day in Mobile, Alabama. <laughs> Santa Claus wasn't coming to my house. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: You know,
2: he wasn't going to hit any houses down there. He would have got blown right into the right back to the north pole, right back up here. <laughs> Definitely.
1: Yeah, I missed the last two Christmases, I think, because the Storm Chasers are right around them. I I think it's been an active subtropical jet, but I'm going to go see the fam this year.
0: (laughs) So I wanted to ask you, Reed, a little bit of what the evolution has been like for you guys, going from working on Storm Chasers on Discovery to producing your own show, Tornado Chasers, which I'm a huge fan of, uh, by the way. Um, How has that been? What has been the biggest change for you doing the the whole self-produced thing?
1: Well, there's a bigger change before Storm Chasers to Storm Chasers for sure. <laughs> I mean, I was kind of used to a pretty sheltered grad school lifestyle. I had, you know, didn't get out too much, and then suddenly, when you know, the reality show uh, you know, kind of spear hits you like a train, it can be it can be pretty intense. But um, you know, it happened really fast. It seemed just like yesterday. It was 2008, and it seems like just yesterday too that we deployed the Dominator in the field for the first time, and it was a lot of fun though working with Discovery and get a lot of really good friends and everything too like the camera guys everybody in the car awesome you lose some friends too and think sometimes reality television can, can change a lot of people but um, and then afterward it, 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 the, the change I think definitely is that you didn't see the same friends that you saw for like like four years in production you know, our camera guy Chris whiteneck was out there but uh, and it was awesome to have him uh, but the, the the other people it was kind of kind of sad not to chase those guys but know, um, it it, the, the change wasn't wasn't too much. The, the production was run uh, similarly. It wasn't on such a, a huge scale. We had to do it a lot cheaper, and, um, you know, it was, it was done you know, more intimate, I think, too, and it felt a lot more natural. Uh, it was more just us kind of do, doing our thing and getting documented, whereas in Storm Chasers, it, it started off that way and then, you know, got a little bit more complicated with time. Um <laughs> But uh, yeah, for for Tornado Chasers, it was a lot of fun, and it was a lot of work, too. I mean, the Kickstarter thing was was nuts, and I was working on my dissertation like 20 hours a day, sometimes 24, sometimes 36 hours straight, and then doing that Kickstarter was intense, you know, the the marathon ones and all that, and uh, I didn't even know my first, middle, and last name, I think, by the end of it, but uh, it it was definitely rewarding, and um, we're we're hoping to, to do it again next year. if unless yeah you never know what what could happen uh, next year but we're hoping to do tornado chasers again uh
0: in the i believe it was the first episode of uh, the second season from 2013 uh was when you saw dominator three for the first time can you put into words what your feelings were (laughs) when that drove into your driveway for the first time
1: um the first thought was just wow you know this thing is absolutely incredible it's a lot bigger than the other dominators and uh my second thought was I wish we had this thing in 2009 when my window blew out, <laughs> but uh, it, 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 it's a lot faster too. I remember driving around it. That was a huge difference. Uh, it takes dominator one and two about 15 minutes to get to the speed limit, but dominator three could fly. We even, uh, uh to- well not that we'd fly over the speed limit by any means. It means you made a mistake if you have to speed out there, but, um, it's also great for pulling out the other dominators. We had you know, two or three of them in the field, uh, <laughs> about a year ago in Nebraska, and we were able to pull two of the dominators out uh, with the winch on the front. So that, that's definitely huge. And uh, you know, Sean's a machine, too. I mean, he drive, <laughs> he drive down from Saskatchewan, you know, to Oklahoma. In the early spring, he has to do that drive quite a few times. So he's pretty worn out by the time we get up to the, uh, Canada, and he's still going strong chasing up there. So, Ryan, I know you've <laughs> chased him down for three uh, nope. recently. How did you enjoy it?
3: Oh, that was pretty awesome. Quite an experience.
1: How are the gas (laughs) station stops?
3: Yeah, pretty interesting, that's for sure. They're fun. You you meet all
1: kinds of interesting people out there.
3: Got got, uh, yelled at a few times. They're like, we don't want to see this thing around here. This thing's going to bring us bad luck. (laughs)
1: Yeah, it's, it's fun to see people's reactions. and You forget that you're in a car like that sometimes, too, and then You look out the window and you see people like take a picture of you and everything. You just kind of wave at them and then you realize that you're in an unusual vehicle. But I always. uh, Semi drivers. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. But I was storm chasing in a rental, uh, a little compact sedan in Virginia, which was definitely different. (laughs) But you still chase like you're in the Dominator. That's one thing. When we were up in Canada in 2012, I think it was July 3rd. For that white rope we were in in the yukon but we were still storm chasing like it was the dominator was that when you? i was started- deploying this probe out of the back of it the uh this thing on a remote controlled vehicle and uh when we were close to that white rope i opened the back hatch and slammed my head against it and suddenly there's blood everywhere and didn't know where i was i think i had, had a concussion actually I had to go to the hospital the next morning and uh we would have intercepted that one if that didn't happen but that's kind of how i met sean is he showed up with a, a first aid kit because I was putting duct tape on it and everything. Because there's no way I'm going to the hospital <laughs> in the middle of a storm. Like, that. you know, you drive 36 hours the whole entire way, and you're on a storm, and you just don't. I just was not going to go to the hospital. So, <laughs> <laughs> but I thought I was in the dominator after hitting my head. You know, I was, I was ready to intercept. But uh, unfortunately, that was the, the the only tornado on that day. And there were a few others, but nothing intercept.
3: Nice.
2: Reed, I wanted to ask you about um, about a, uh, a couple of people uh, in your life who you lost over the last year and a bit, because I was thinking about um, I was thinking about um, I'm currently doing some graduate studies as well in in the field of psychology and. And I'm thinking about people who mentored me and have mentored me through that sort of journey. And I know that, um, obviously Tim Samaras was uh, a huge influence for you, but also, um, Peter Lamb. And I wanted you to comment about both of those, uh, guys and, and what they meant to your career and, and what it's like to, to lose a mentor. And, and hopefully now you'll be able to transition into the mentoring phase of, of maybe your career, even though you're still quite, quite young and just sort of finishing off your dissertation, I'm sure there's, I mean, there's obviously a lot of storm chasers who look up to you, but there's also going to be a lot of scientists who are going to be looking up to you, and and you'll have that opportunity to mentor as well, so tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well, I'm starting to feel my age, for sure. I'm at 34 now, so getting a little older, and in storm chasing years, that's about 58, right? All the energy drinks, all the stuff. I'm working out now. Uh, got a juicer and everything here, and uh, and so I'm definitely, definitely feeling better all the time. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's it was horrible, you know. Uh, with, with Tim, uh, you know, he's always been someone I looked up to, and he's a pioneer in our field. And and one thing about Tim is he's a great guy too, really nice, uh, genius too. I mean, the guy was a self-taught engineer, you know, built the Kahuna camera, the, the probes. you measured the world record pressure fall in 2003, Manchester tornado on June 24. And we were actually on the same tornado. So that was my first uh, real exposure encounter with, with Tim Samaras. And when we were backing up, you know, I was a little worried because it, it's kind of an optical illusion with a wedge. When you look straight up, it always looks like it's coming toward you. Uh looks like it's kind of retrograding because on the north side, there's the, the easterly motion. See, so it looks straight up, and it looks like it's coming back. So we put the car in reverse, and we had a beater vehicle back then, so we weren't even sure it would make it up to South Dakota, and we were always a little worried the thing would die out. And as we're backing up, I see this vehicle zoom by, and I'm like, who the hell is that? They're getting closer to I am. It Damaris. <laughs> and right after that, you know, he went north and dropped a probe in the path of it and measured that 100-millibar you know, pressure fall. And uh, that you know, still today is the world record pressure fall measurement uh, ever recorded uh, inside a tornado, and it's that low pressure that drives the wind circulation around it. And inside those suction vortices, who knows how far that that pressure can fall? And it's up to us, the, the you know, and, and you guys, and and everybody in the storm chasing community, uh, especially on the, the science front, if they have the instrumentation to to take you know, Tim's research where he left off and try to see just how low the, the pressure can fall inside some of the violent tornadoes. And I know that inside those suction vortices where the wind speeds could even theoretically hit close to the speed of sound. I mean, who knows how low, low that pressure could be. And, uh, you know, losing someone like Tim is, is more than devastating. Uh, I have trouble communicating my, my emotions in general. I uh, pretty much, and usually a spaz are pretty quiet all the time, but uh, uh, it's, it, it was devastating. And I thought it was some kind of hoax when I first heard, you know, I thought, of all people, there's there's no way this could happen to Tim, and
0: you know he always
1: watched was so concerned about our safety too, intercepting tornadoes and very rightly so. And uh, that meant a lot that you know he was genuinely concerned for us, and uh you know he we became friends. We were working on on storm chasers and you know, had a lot of plans for for the future too. And um, you know he's someone that definitely motivated me to to, to do the science because you know I always got close to tornadoes over the years. I was always broke and didn't have any instrumentation, but it was people like Tim that motivated me. That if I'm going to get close to tornadoes, I want to attach a number to, to what we're experiencing and deploy instrumentation inside tornadoes. Because an intercept just for the sake of intercepting is not worth it unless you can come away with it, come away from it with, with data uh, deployed inside a tornado. And you know, intercepting tornadoes is a little overrated when you're inside of it too. But I think that we're kind of getting more into the, the probe deployment type phase, which is also inspired by by Tim. And to lose a scientist like that. Not only are we going to take a huge hit in the scientific and storm chasing community, but we lost one of the great people in storm chasing. And it seems to be happening a lot, too. My my really good friend, my late friend, Andy Gabrielson, one of the the best storm chasers I know as well, in addition to Tim, he Mm -hmm. lost his life to a a drunk driver driving home to Minnesota at like 2 p.m. And, uh, you know, it's it's really sad losing him. And and before that, there's Eric Wynn and and Matt Hughes and – you know, it's just, it's really sad to lose such great people in, in the storm chasing community. And, you know, it's, it's sad that it, it has to happen to anybody and especially the, the great people. And, uh, with Tim, we, we saw him you know, two days, two or three days before, uh, the El Reno day. And we were talking about the storm and you could see the passion in his eyes. He was so fired up about what was happening. And, uh, then we, uh, intercepted the, the tornado in north, Northern Kansas there on May 27, and, um, I wish I could have that, that meeting back again in hindsight and spend more time with, with Tim and, and Paul and, and Carl Young. And Carl Young is one of the best guys you'd ever meet, too. Just such a nice guy and so passionate. And Paul, the the limited time I spent with him is just as great as his dad. Uh, awesome guy, so passionate about what they do. And it was just, just absolutely devastating and uh, still is. And uh, then this year I was actually chasing in Canada in July when I found out that my advisor dr. lamb uh, passed away and it was so out of the blue he was the healthiest guy we worked out every day so stubborn it's so much grit you know of, I thought he'd be living until he was like 140 years old and uh, he was like kind of like a father figure I guess growing up you know I worked with him since 2003 and uh, you know he gave me advice that I extended well beyond just just my graduate research that you know, I'll use for the rest of my life. Uh, pretty much the, you know, the work ethic, uh, you know, accomplishing things, doing research, writing journal articles, even writing professional emails, even things in my personal life. Dr. Dr. Lamb was a great, great mentor, and you know, it's it was it was also devastating. And he's also the only person that's read my whole dissertation in full. And you now I was really motivated to, to to give him that dissertation that he was patiently waiting for. And it's it's even more sad that. I can't see the look on his face, and I dropped that 300 page document on his desk. But, but now I you know I'm definitely going to uh, regroup and finish what I started and, and dedicate it to, to Dr. Lamb. So I've been in school way too long. It's been about 16 or 17 years now. So I have to finish that dissertation. It's about 99.9% completed. Uh, I just kind of ran out of gas the last few years. But, uh, you know, it's it's hard to burn the candle at both ends, doing research and the storm chasing and the reality stuff and the speaking events and the the website and and, trying to scrap together a personal life can definitely uh, burn you out. But definitely getting more and more dialed in now. So I plan on getting the the dissertation done and and dedicating it to Dr. Lamb.
2: Are you going to are you going to make all of us call you doctor?
1: (laughs) No, no, definitely not. I'm not doing it for the title. I can tell you that right now. (laughs) Dr. T. (laughs) Tell tell me Doc. Doc, who's trimmer? (laughs) (laughs) I heard that one in kindergarten for the first time. (laughs) (laughs) You guys' podcast is is outside, right?
0: We're doing it outside for the first time. It's something I dreamed up. as like it's such such nice evenings in July. I hate being yeah. down in a basement doing it when we do July podcasts. So I was like, I'm gonna do it outside and so far it's been pretty <laughs> yeah. good. Bugs haven't been too bad. We got the we got the smokers
1: going <laughs> keeping the bugs away, so yeah, the mosquitoes are pretty big up there, I noticed. <laughs> and in Michigan, too, we went camping in the Upper Peninsula, of Michigan, a few weeks ago, and I have never seen so many mosquitoes in my entire life. And this is kind of interesting and related to climate, is it's one of the most active uh, seasons in history for mosquitoes around the Great Lakes region because of all the snow melt and all the ice and everything. There's so much standing water that you just get lit up like a Christmas tree out there by, by mosquitoes. It, it is the state bird of Michigan, too, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't uh, experience I have so your... when, I was, when I was chasing Saskatchewan, I have never seen bugs that big. And there's actually one time <laughs> we were chasing uh, west of uh, or north of Swift, Swift Current. Sean and I were up there, and uh, we were underneath a, a high base circulation. And there was rain going all the way around, and you could look up and see it. And then suddenly I see these vortices, and I'm like, Sean, we've got a multiple vortex in front of us. And I'm freaking out, and he's like, Reed, those are bugs. <laughs> And it was actually, uh, there were mosquitoes and and midges, like, circulating up, and little vortices going all the way up. I think they're getting trapped inside the rain, and you only see that in Canada. (laughs) I I love Jason up there.
3: I've got you on video, uh, when we ran into each other, and, uh, you pull up beside us, and you're like, there's mosquitoes, they're like birds, (laughs) they're freaking huge, and you're just yelling at all the mosquitoes.
1: (laughs) 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 And normally they don't like me, though, because... I think they must have bad blood or something. Normally they'll land and they'll immediately fly away, but I think there's so many in Canada and there's such competition for, for food that they'll even come after me.
3: <laughs> Set up to Reed.
1: That's like drinking Mr. Pibb instead of Dr. Pepper.
0: <laughs> so, Reed, you probably get asked this a lot, but uh, in your years with the Dominators, what has been the strongest tornado you guys have intercepted?
1: Uh... This is it's kind of weird because it was a rope tornado in terms of wind speed that we measured. It was on June 5th, 2009, near Lagrange, Wyoming, and it was roping out. It started off as a really big, stout tornado, but we had some fog up issues with the windshield of the Dominator. We didn't have the inner windshield wiper. We had a blower system, which was supposed to get rid of the condensation. And so, anytime we tried to punch through a hail core, the whole entire thing would fog up, and we'd have to get out with a Swiffer mop, you know, in a raging hail core, getting pounded by golf balls, and manually defog the windshield. And uh, so, you know, we were a little bit late getting on it, but it was roping out, it was coming, you know, moving more southeast, and it was a Sidewinder. So <laughs> it was coming our direction and we got, I thought we overshot it, but then we dropped the vehicle to the ground and the thing hit like a freight train. It was probably the first one that we were directly in the middle of, and I can't describe to you the power of that, that, I mean, I, I thought, I knew a tornado would be strong when it hit the vehicle, but it definitely felt like almost a solid object hitting the vehicle. The whole thing was shaking back and forth. Uh, we measured 155.2 mile per hour wind and that tornado, and then the one that blew out our window was 138.8 miles per hour when that suction vortex whipped around the backside and hit us. Uh, That one was definitely intense in terms of the ear popping. The pressure fall was really intense inside the Hmm. June 17, 2009 tornado in southern Nebraska when it blew out our window, and I think it's because it was intensifying. It was really rapidly intensifying, so maybe the pressure fall precedes the wind acceleration, but our ears were popping, and the engineer in the back that operated the radar had a stream of blood coming down his ear. And our camera guy was like, Chris Whiteneck was like, Mick, your ear's bleeding. And this was before the window blew out. And he had clogged sinuses. So the really low pressure fall actually blew out his eardrums. And he went to the doctor afterward, and they told him it was an injury that a lot of times they see with pilots when they fly at really high altitude or have drastic altitude changes. They'll, they'll have that, that same thing. And then probably one of the, the strongest ones, I think, but we didn't get a horizontal wind measurement because our anemometer was was ripped off by a barn that exploded just to our left, so we didn't get the horizontal wind measurement. But we measured a vertical wind of uh, 175 miles an hour with our our mobile radar. It's an X-band radar. And we had that pointed straight up and measured a 175 mile per hour wind in the the vertical. And that proved theory that uh, Dr. Lance Leslie uh, proved in his uh, his theory in his uh, uh, PhD dissertation in the late 1960s, that the horizontal winds are roughly equivalent to the vertical winds inside large or small vortices relative to all the vortices we see on this planet. And that's above the friction layer because where friction starts to interact with the tornado, that's when you get vortex breakdown and you get those suction vortices that can be much more intense. And sometimes those suction vortices can be almost pure vertical wind uh, with very slight rotation and then shift over to pure rotational wind with very little vertical. And uh, that ratio is called the swirl uh, ratio in, in, in tornadoes. So uh, but yeah, 175 miles per hour, I think we experienced inside the Wadena, Minnesota tornado, and that was June 17, 2010. So, and then June 17 this year, too, we uh, had that Coleridge, Nebraska tornado where we deployed all those probes in there. So June 17 seems to be like a day we should all chase.
0: <laughs> Regarding 20, 2013, because, I mean, it was so well-documented, the tornadoes you guys saw with tornado chasers and everything, you guys saw – Numerous very unique tornadoes that year. Um, which one? I mean, obviously El Reno stands out, uh, obviously for obvious reasons. But um, besides El Reno, what is your most memorable one from from 2013?
1: From 2013? Yeah. Um, probably the uh, tornadoes on May 19, 2013, the one near Edmond that we intercepted, and on that one it, it crossed I-35. And that was in Oklahoma. I been in Oklahoma. There was a big outbreak there when Shawnee, Oklahoma, was hit. And there was loss of life there as well. And um, yeah, the, the one on May 19, which was, was it May 19? Yeah, definitely May. I should know my dates. That means I'm getting old. Uh, but we intercepted that tornado at <laughs> to an I-35, and a tree was ripped up from the ground and shot straight up like a rocket. And also, Jim Kintori, uh, another one of my. My mentors was uh, was with us in the Dominator, and that was his uh, first tornado that he intercepted, and he was reporting live to the Weather Channel as we were going inside that tornado, which which definitely must be a first, and and he's awesome. His passion for weather is as real as it looks on television. I can tell you that right now. But the more tornado, you know, um, I didn't see that one. It seems like every tornado that misses my house by a mile or or less I miss over the years there was one in 2003 on May 8 2003 where I went all the way to northern Nebraska and it missed my apartment by three quarters of a mile so if I would have set up a tripod in the backyard I would have seen that one too and we didn't see anything that day and ended up hydroplaning and did two 360s with five of us in the vehicle and somehow Joel pulled us out of it Uh, I remember and hydroplaning is very dangerous so any new storm chasers that are watching this, make sure you drive slow on you know, if there's any heavy rain whatsoever. Hydroplaning is probably the most scary thing that I've faced there, storm chasing and uh, doing those two 360s and seeing the cars in front of us and the cars behind and the cars in front of us and then over and over again was one of the most terrifying experiences of my life. And Time definitely slows down. We were heading straight for a ditch on the right, and I remember thinking this is going to hurt really bad. <laughs> then we swung back the other way and almost went to the other ditch, and we were going 80 miles an hour. So... It would have been extremely bad if we got in an accident, and that was definitely a learning experience. I'll go about 20 miles an hour if there's any heavy rain now, usually. And unless In the Dominators, though, they're a lot heavier with the big tires, so we've actually never hydroplane in the Dominators, which would be disastrous for us and everybody else in the road, too, so we have to be very careful for that.
0: So you you mentioned the the warning systems in the U.S. and and how advanced that is. In your experience with Canadian warning systems, and we've talked a lot about this uh, within the Saskatchewan Storm Chaser community on the show, uh, what does Canada need to do to improve? Like, What has your your experience been with the warning systems and technologies uh, here in Canada?
1: Well, they have gotten a lot better. The uh, first time I chased there was in 2006. The first tornado was in 07 that uh, June 23rd, 2007, one near Pipestone. And, you know, I'm, I'm used to chasing really with, with no data and almost prefer it sometimes. So it's fun going up into into southern Canada with no data and just relying purely on your eyes and one thing I feel about data is it doesn't always help you find the storms, but it makes you aware of the ones that you're missing. So it kind of just pisses you off when you're out there. <laughs> but, but I think um, I think that they, there's they've come a long way since 2007, which is a really good thing. And I think that um, uh, one great thing in the, in the U.S. is um, you know, uh, private weather companies, there's a lot of uh, private weather companies and, and competition amongst the, the, the different agencies, the government agencies, the, the, they all work together. It's, it's kind of competitive, but they work together and improve all their products. And we have such great technologies here for for, uh, for, for detecting rotation in storms that you know, we're a little spoiled in the U.S., but things are getting getting a lot better in Canada. And, um, you know, the one thing I noticed back in 2007 is a tornado warning a lot of times wouldn't get issued unless there was already one on the ground. And it's good to issue one, but you'd like to issue most tornado warnings before they touch down, if you could. Uh, but, you know, the technologies are a little bit lacking. But the radar technology is, isn't as bad as, as you might think. I think that um, you can still see the rotation on radar. You can see if there are supercells. You can assess the environment and the path of the storm using the RAP analysis. Uh, but I think that, you know, uh, updating all the radars would, would be a huge undertaking, but I think that that'll happen at, at some point in the future. And I think that Environment Canada and uh, the Weather Network does an absolutely incredible job with uh, the information, and the tools that they have. And another huge development in Canada is all the storm chasers that are, are chasing up there now. And it used to be that you'd be all alone uh, next to the tornado. And, you know, a lot of times they, they wouldn't be warned or they'd be outside of, uh, of the radar, uh, the radar coverage. The radar beam couldn't reach them to see the rotation. Uh, But now with all the storm chasers up there, there's a lot more eyes underneath the storms. And um, I think that if everybody works together, Environment Canada, uh, news agencies and the storm chasers and emergency managers uh, working together in perfect harmony, I think that uh, you can can limit uh, a a lot of loss of life in the path of these storms in the U.S. and in Canada. But I storm chased in Argentina back in 2009, and they have one weather service office for the whole country, from Patagonia all the way up to near the Amazon and that's a big-time struggle up there, and, and radar data is just absolutely lacking. So uh, the U.S. and Canada are leaps and bounds ahead uh, of a lot of places in, in the rest of the world, and ideally uh, places like Argentina, uh, South Africa, Bangladesh, uh, North, northeast India, uh, China, uh, all those places. It would be great to see uh, you know, WSR-88D-type radars uh, across, across the world, or even higher resolution than that. That would be awesome.
0: I think there was uh, something earlier this year that you had talked about uh, building something to deploy sort of ground-based probes out of Dominator 3. I think that might be what Jesse's referring to.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, we, we would like to get that in. That was actually Tim Samaras' idea in talking with Kevin. They were brainstorming one time, and we were going to build an automatic probe deployment trace, and we're going down the road. We can leave an array of ground-based probes in the path of it. And right now, we're still manually deploying. Uh, we have our air cannon system on the back of Dominator 2 that can launch a bunch of them. And uh, we also we have a, a hand built air cannon that will put through the, a hole in the back window and you can aim it that way and then shoot the parachute probes inside. And then we have one ground based probe that will you know, pick out of the back and set it on the ground right now. And then we also have these Zorbs, which was a, an idea from uh, a storm chasing on our team, Bill Beach, uh, that we came up with over the winter. They're these transparent spheres. Uh, and they're built for humans, actually. So humans will get in these Zorbs and you know, they can roll around and stuff in there. And we saw that and said, why don't we make a smaller version and put an instrument pack in there with the camera? And those actually worked on the Coleridge, Nebraska day, the day after the twin tornadoes, uh, which I think was it was one of the strongest tornadoes I've ever seen, for sure, on that day. There was about 7,000 cape, all kinds of shear, and just a beast of a tornado. It's a good thing that it wasn't in a populated area. And uh, you know, th- those probes work so far, but we really want to get the automatic probe deployment trade going, if not next year, the year after. But uh, we have a-, a limited science budget these days, so we'll, we'll need to figure out something. Let do a Kickstarter or get a grant, or who knows, maybe uh, another reality show will-, will-, will come our way, which was huge. With Discovery, we had a good science budget, so they definitely supported our, our research really well, which is the best thing about about having a reality show and uh, makes it worth it, honestly.
0: So uh, looking ahead uh, to the fall season here and, and going into to next year, um, besides uh, tornado Chasers and stuff potentially doing another Kickstarter, any other big projects or plans uh, on your mind going into 2015?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, there's some in the works, too, and uh, we'll be, you know, we don't like to announce the, the projects until they're coming to fruition because, it's, you know, it's just kind of weird to say like coming soon, and then it doesn't come, and you're like coming soon, big news, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we probably want to wait till we unroll stuff. We're always working on stuff. Uh, Seth Deckard, our programmer, uh, he's a machine. He's the one that that engineered the whole live streaming platform, and he's always working on new stuff that we'll be unrolling. Um, he'd probably be pissed off if I if I talked about him in too much detail, <laughs> but. Uh, as programmers they don't like to don't like to launch, you know, say what the idea is at the end, you know, and when they're when they have to do all the coding and programming and it's easy for us just to say coming soon, this thing and Seth has yeah. to do all the work. But uh, and then Ken Cole, uh, is our uh production manager and a jack of all trades. He has a meteorology degree too. I think he graduated number one in our class. He was in my class back then in meteorology, but was interested in film. So he we went to film school at OU for grad school and uh you know he'll be involved in whatever production project we have, whether it be Tornado Chasers or uh, on television, um, um, who knows what, what, what's going to happen in the future. But we're always working nonstop, and we'll, we'll keep doing that. So uh, I'll post about it when we're about to, to roll something out. But in the meantime, I'll just keep keep chasing everything I can, can make happen.
0: What's been uh, your favorite memory? Um, when you're chasing the Domineers, obviously you get – stopped by a lot of people and a lot of people come up to you is there a is there a certain stop that stands out um that some somebody's done or just a certain place that you've gone that you you've drawn a, a large cloud crowd that's really memorable
1: um yeah there's they're, they're always that that's the cool thing about the dominators it brings in so many interesting characters so you'll meet all kinds of interesting people and every gas station stop is fun you never know who you're going to meet <laughs> um There's so many. I I think that my favorite stops are just the ones on the side of the road when you see your storm chasing friends. You you don't see them throughout the year. You know we don't, as you guys know, we don't really have normal lives, so (laughs) it's fun to to see friends on the on the side of the road, especially those that you haven't haven't seen in a while, and talk about the storms and storm chasing in general. And you know it's 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 always fun to fun to to see people out there. But trying to think of the most memorable one, most memorable stop. I remember oh, there was one in uh. In Canada, we were running out of gas, and we were live streaming back in 2012. The gas stations are a little further apart up there, and I think someone was watching our live stream and saw that we were running low. And just as we were petering out with gas, we saw someone standing on the side of the road with a gas tank, and so we pulled over <laughs> and they filled us up and, and saved our chase. We were able to catch back up with the storm, and that was amazing. You know, people in Canada are so supportive of us, the storm chasers, and. Uh, yeah, I'd be ha- I'd be positive, too, if I had, uh you know, poutine uh, as, as a regular part of my diet. <laughs> <laughs> Love that stuff. <style>. Wow. <laughs> I got to figure out how to make it. I guess the cheese, it's probably pretty easy to make with the gravy and the, the cheese curds. I just don't know where to, to purchase curds. I guess you could get it at, at Walmart. I don't, I don't think
0: the curds are just a necessity. Curds. It's just cheese in general. But... <laughs> yeah.
1: Sorry, what
0: was that? I don't think it's really. I don't think the cheese curds are really a necessity. As long as you have some form of cheese, it's a poutine. <laughs> yeah,
1: but the consistency of the curds in there, but <laughs> that's the the next
0: level. That's true. Uh, Nick Schenner, I know you have to probably take off here soon. Do you have any final questions for Reid?
2: Uh, I was going to ask you, Reid, about uh, sometimes you've mentioned uh, your OCD. Uh tell us a little bit about that experience for you. Uh do you have a, a actual diagnosis of that and how does it affect you?
1: No, I don't have a actual diagnosis. I like to consider it a hyper hyperfocus. <laughs> I don't consider it a disorder at all. You know, it's called uh obsessive compulsive disorder, but I think it's just passion. You know, I guess some people could say are obsessed with storm chasing for all these years, but I also collected insects for like ten years and So I call it OCD a little bit, Uh, overthinking, I think, sometimes. But, you know, you need that in storm chasing a little bit. And, um, you know, I think that if I get passionate about something, it it typically doesn't go away.
0: (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) What is your uh this question just came to my mind actually is what is your I know you've chased a few uh hurricanes and such uh in the last several years. Um what's the biggest challenge that you face when you're planning um you know to tackle something a storm like that?
1: You're breaking up a little bit there, but I think it was about about hurricanes and the differences in preparing for a chase like that or yeah. I love chasing hurricanes. You know, sometimes if you you chase like a Cat 1 or something, it's just like a lot of horizontal rain. And honestly, you could probably just stand in a squall line. and It would be about the same. But, um, you know, I chased – the first one I chased was back in 1999, I think it was. It was uh, Hurricane Floyd in eastern North Carolina. And back then, we didn't have cell phones, and I wasn't old enough to rent a car. I found out when I got to Charlotte, North Carolina, so we had to take a taxi out to Wilmington. And I saw this guy that was checking into a hotel there. His name was Ernest, a really nice guy. And he uh, his uh, a mobile home was under a mandatory evacuation. It was out near the Cape Fear. And he was like, hey, you can watch over our, our, our home you know, near the coast if you want. So I asked him if we could stay there you know, and document it. So he drove us all the way out there yeah we had to ride that out in a mobile home which was pretty intense um you know the the windows blew out the whole thing was shaking there were floodwaters all the way around had no phone no cable it was pitch black and that was definitely a, a safety violation that was a mistake on our part but uh chasing hurricanes is is definitely it, it, it's fun but it, it can be scary too and a little overwhelming uh especially if you're in a parking garage for like three days surrounded by floodwaters and you know, you, you encounter all kinds of crazy things and you're chasing hurricanes. Like in that parking garage, there are wild boars, there are spiders, snakes, all kinds of animals were, you know, had the same idea as us to seek shelter in the overpass and ride out the storm. So there's all kinds of, uh, potential dangers out there. Like you get attacked by a wild boar and stuff like that, which would be bad. Had to pull a, a bear girls maneuver on it. But, um, But, yeah, you have to kind of – Justin White, too, who we storm chased with, is like a survival expert. So he was heating up uh, cans of uh, of non-perishables with magnesium and alcohol or something, baby wipes, and just, like, built a fire out there and stuff. And so you kind of have to use a little bit of survival stuff and and, uh, use some Boy Scout skills, I guess, beyond tying knots, which is fun, and uh, and make it a snow cave almost like we did in Superstorm Sandy, which I guess is a frankenstorm. It wasn't really a hurricane. It was kind of a blizzard, but – same kind of deal. You're definitely immersed in the conditions for a long time. And the last thing a storm chaser ever wants to do is become a victim of a storm and exhaust uh, resources out there. You just want to go out there and, and help out and document the storm and provide reports. And uh, you never want to be the person that has to get rescued. And honestly, if I ever got in trouble, I, I probably wouldn't call anyone. I would just try to get myself out of it myself. And I couldn't, and, and, and so be it, because I'll never take uh, resources away from the people that, 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 that truly need them. But uh, we saw carjackings one time in Hurricane Rita in uh, 2005, like right in front of us, and there's really nothing you can do to stop it or you're gonna get shot. Uh, but you know, a lot of times the only people that are in the, the path of a hurricane are storm chasers, uh, criminals, uh, police officers, and an interesting <laughs> group of people that, that stay behind for hurricanes. That, so you don't only have to deal with the storm, but there's also a, a human element involved there. And, uh, Hurricane Katrina, that, that devastating storm uh, down there, was an in- interesting experience that involved a high-speed chase of the, a rusty dump truck. <laughs> I'll get in and I can uh, talk about that in another podcast if you want, but <laughs> may not want to cover that right now. <laughs> it wasn't our fault; it was a misunderstanding. Uh, but I had to ride that one out in a, a jail cell uh, until the I came, and they thought we were looters because we were in a regular Honda Accord. And this rusty dump truck that was following us was actually the chief of police in Slidell, Louisiana. <laughs> and so he was almost running us off the road. And I thought this was some lunatic, you know, that was trying to steal all our camera equipment. So, of course, we're going to run away from an unmarked rusty dump truck. And uh, we see police officers come in the distance. So we're flashing our lights to let them know that there's this freak in a rusty dump truck chasing us. And they come up and do this sideways slide. They all hop out. There's six guns surrounding me, you know, all around the car. I was with Simon Brewer. Uh, he was on the Weather Channel for a while. We used to chase hurricanes a lot together. And I just put my hands up, you know, and I'm like, I'm a storm chaser. And there's a gun like this far away from me. They pull me out of the vehicle. And I look behind and the, the rusty dump truck is parked right there. And this big chief of police gets out. Of his face is bright red, you know, and starts just roughing me up, slapping me against the side of the car. I look over at Simon, and he's just laughing at me. I guess he couldn't help it. <laughs> and uh, he's like, I want DNA tests on these guys. Don't let them out until I get back. And they bring us to the jail cell, put it, and all the inmates were out of their cells helping out, you know, for when the hurricane came. So Simon and I were the only people in this little three foot by three foot cell. They wouldn't even acknowledge me. I was trying to communicate with them, let them know I'm a storm chaser, but they wouldn't even make eye contact. It was like I was being treated like an animal. And uh, it took like two hours until the chief finally got back. And then they let us out, and then we're all friends. Like it was like (laughs) night and day. The second he got back and they let us out, and like we told them all about the meteorology of the storm and it was like they were happy to have storm chasers there and but by that time the floodwaters were too high so we couldn't drive our honda accord out and the floodwaters kept rising and rising and i had to wade out in those floodwaters and you know carry our chainsaws and all our equipment out of the car and i looked down and saw this clump of fire ants that was swarming and everything and if you bump into one of those it'll cover your body and just absolutely light you up which would be horrible and uh, So we got all our, uh, all our survival equipment, the food and water that we needed in a bag and had to leave a lot of stuff behind and just watch their car basically get submerged and start floating. And there we almost had to, we, then we got to the second floor balcony and we're standing there watching the floodwaters continue to rise. And by this time, all the police that uh, they're our friends at this point, (laughs) uh, we were riding it out together and uh, then we almost had to go up to the, the roof when it kept getting, uh, the water kept rising rising and it was after the storm had passed the water sloshed back from lake pontchartrain so the winds had died down and then after a while suddenly all these fishing boats just appeared out of nowhere and we caught a ride on a fishing boat and uh they're at they wanted us to go to this conference center where we'd probably have all our survival food and stuff i mean who knows what would happen there so we just decided to walk it out we got on an elevated railroad track and walked about five miles climbed over all these trees and everything and uh i started walking west Uh, It was getting dark out. You know, we thought there would be alligators and all kinds of animals forced out by the floodwaters that tried to take us out. But I put my thumb up, and the first car that drove by, a guy in a red truck, picked us up and drove us to Hammond, Louisiana. And we squatted in a hotel there because all the employees were gone. No cell phones worked or anything. And so we just had to stay in this hotel. We found an open room. There were no open rooms anywhere, but you just kind of found open shelters and you just sleep there and then the next morning we woke up again and started hitchhiking and the first guy picked us up and drove us to Jackson Mississippi and I finally called my mom and found out that she had filed a missing persons report and doesn't like it when I <laughs> chase her things anymore but definitely learned a lot we, we, the good thing with the Dominator is we won't get mistaken for looters when we're out there driving around I think a lot of people lose their cool in the path of these storms and I probably would too if I was you know based in a in the path of a, a, a category five like that. But it's a long story, and it was a, a misunderstanding. And in hindsight, it's kind of funny.
0: I wanted to ask you about uh, when you first got into storm chasing, um, what was your mom's reaction? Was she supportive or was she kind of hesitant?
1: She was always very supportive of the sciences. Um, in fact, I wasn't even allowed to play sports growing up because she saw it as a distraction. So I was just pure science Olympiad, oboe, Boy Scouts, school, everything was just pure. I wish I had you know, played more sports and had more balance, uh, but I mean, it was also good to encourage the sciences too. And uh, I went down to Oklahoma and just started storm chasing on my own. I didn't even have a car down there. So I kind of hitch rides with my friends and didn't know what I was doing at all. I uh, saw the F5, uh, the first F5 to hit more Oklahoma on May 3rd, 1999. And uh, it was before the research came out that it was too dangerous, to, more dangerous to seek shelter underneath an overpass. So we were in a soft top Geo Tracker, and we abandoned our car and got underneath an overpass, got covered in mud. Uh, thankfully, it, it wobbled a little bit uh, to the left and missed it. And then I went back home that summer, and I thought, you know, I'm all independent now, and I can storm chase whenever I want. And uh, there was a high risk in Nebraska, and I was working at the golf course at the time, and had to drive all night to get out there. So I was packing up my Plymouth Reliant in my garage, and my mom came out, and uh, she's like, "What do you think you're doing?" I told her I'm going out to chase this high risk. And she's like, no, you're not. And I was in a 1985 Plymouth Reliant. That was my vehicle. It had a blown-out muffler, so it sounded like a Harley going down the road and could have died at any <laughs> second. But she's like, don't call me if your car breaks down. And uh, so, But I said, I'm going anyway. I've already seen an F5. i already storm chased. So I got in the car and drove off, and that's the first time that she wasn't – or that's the last time that she wasn't supportive of it. But, I mean, she just worried about me, you know, going out there. And, you know, right, I'd be worried about me, too, if I was her at that time. And uh, she's still <laughs> a little worried. Uh, but I went out there, and, uh, like, 15 minutes down the road, I called her from the payphone, and everything was good. And she's been very supportive of storm chasing. But she doesn't like the whole intercepting thing. And, like, uh, after the Coleridge Nebraska tornado, for example, she'll send me a text and be like, what do you think you're doing, Reed? That's asinine, mm-hmm. you know, or something like that. So usually after we post the video, she'll, she'll send me a text message that. That's pretty funny, but she just, you know, probably just blocks it out now, I think.
3: I got a a message from Nick Dreshman, who's another TVN chaser. He said, um, there was a a fan that asked him, he goes, uh, what made you get fascinated with weather?
1: Well, I was actually really, definitely afraid of thunder and lightning when I was really little. <laughs> In fact, I That's slept funny. with my light on. I was afraid of the dark too, so I slept with my light on until I was like nine years old, maybe even like 15. But uh, I was, you know, I think that when you're afraid of something, it can quickly turn to intense curiosity. And from it, for as long as I can remember after that, like maybe five years old on, I just watched the weather channel nonstop. I love severe weather. Anytime a severe thunderstorm warning would get issued. I'd freak out, run around the house, and I'd try to grab our big uh, outdated VHS uh, camcorder and try, try to shoot it. And uh, I loved Lake Effect Snow too, growing up in Michigan. Uh, so, like, whenever northwesterly really winds would happen, you know, I'd have to watch in the south sky the dark dark cloud band streaming off Lake Michigan where they get like two feet of snow. And at our place, we'd get nothing. It'd just be like 10 degrees and 10 degrees Fahrenheit and uh, uh, no snow. So, when I got my driver's license as soon as I was 16, When other people were sneaking out and go to parties and stuff, I was sneaking out to chase lake effect snow squalls in in Michigan. So that's kind of how I started and always wanted to be a storm chaser. Uh, uh, I actually wrote a letter to the Weather Channel back in the day when I was really little and uh, said, I want to mount a Doppler radar on top of my car. How do I do that? How do I get into storm chasing? (laughs) And uh, they uh, responded with this form letter uh was like from their legal department or something that said, don't ever storm chase. It's way too dangerous. Leave it to the professionals. And then they gave me a list of a couple tour companies. And I think that was back in the early mid-90s or something like that. And I also wrote um, a handwritten letter to Tim Marshall that I still have. And he responded much more different differently. He responded with all these videos and everything that I watched nonstop and a, a really supportive uh, letter from him that, that I still have. But yeah, I, I got into. I'm always, always obsessed with weather for as long as I remember, and always will be. So, good to hear from you, Nick. He's a good. He, uh, he seems a lot the the monsoon out there too in the southwest, and was chasing the plains and also up into into Canada too. So, good guy.
0: So when you're, uh, I wanted to ask you about this, and I know you talk talk about this a lot, but you know you've you've done a lot of things, uh, and you're on camera a lot when when you're chasing. And when there's a tornado on the ground, everybody likes to sort of laugh at your reactions. Do you, do you, do you I laugh at <laughs> too. <laughs> do you, is this, is that just something that you don't even realize is, is going on with that you're saying? And then you watch it after and you think, wow, I really w- was acting like that? Reacting
1: like that? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it's embarrassing. I'll tell you that right now. Uh, Cause I used to always be behind the camera. You know, I have a little bit of social anxiety, you know, that's, but you know, I like to be behind the camera shooting the tornadoes, and so when you're yeah. freaking out or act like a spaz, you can just hit the mute button or cut it out. And uh, watching storm chasers for the first time, you know how when you hear your voice separate for the first time, it sounds a little weird. Yeah. Like watching that episode when I was screaming back up and it looked like Wolfman and everything. It takes that whole phenomenon to a whole new level. <laughs> I think I was curled <laughs> up in the fetal position. You no, know, just uh, <laughs> while I was watching that. Uh, you no, know, but I, I don't take myself that seriously you know i mean i laugh at it and uh i laugh at uh, other people's comments too which i think they're funny (laughs) i mean i'd I'd probably mock me too i mean i do already so but yeah i get excited when i'm 50 yards from an f5 well how can you not (laughs)
0: well thank you so much reed for joining us tonight we're out of time um hope uh hope we can catch you up here if not this year than next year, but we'll see what the weather brings. Um, always great to talk to you, and hopefully uh, you'll uh, be willing to come back on again in, in the future.
1: Of course. Definitely. Thanks for having me, guys. you got a good thing going here, so so keep it up.
0: All right, Reed, have a great night. Have fun in New York, and uh, we'll keep in touch. Talk to you later.
1: Yeah. All right, see you. Never stop, Chase.